0: The vanguard of the status quo in the U.S. national security state is the war party, and we are going to crash it. My name is Kelly Blejos, and I'm joined today by my friends and co-conspirators Daniel Larison and Barbara Bolin. We love to talk about the status quo in Washington because that is the source of so much of our foreign policy blight. It's about doing the same thing over and over again, listening to the same voices, praising the same old rhetoric, and what do we have to show for it? More escalation, more conflict, more failure. So let's take a look at Russia. For years after the fall of the Soviet Union, tensions have ratcheted up as the governments in Moscow and Washington have drawn further apart. As Putin gathered power and appeared more menacing to the west, the US enjoined NATO to push back and even expand further east. Things came to a head when the US supported the violent protesters that overthrew elected President Viktor Yanukovych in February, 2014. Then Obama administration officials were actively involved in stoking those protests, including Victoria Nuland, who was the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, who had traveled to the countries multiple times ahead of the revolution, and even handed out cookies and sandwiches to the demonstrators. Between then and today, a lot has happened. Russia responded to the coup by invading and annexing Crimea, which is predominantly Russian and holds it to this day. Meanwhile, the Russians were not only blamed by Democrats for meddling in the 2016 election, but for helping to elect Donald Trump, who they said was a stooge of Putin and dragged the country through years of investigations through proof to prove that these two leaders colluded to thwart Hillary Clinton's election as president. It was never proven. Now, President Biden holds in his hand the opportunity to open diplomatic channels again. Instead, he has slapped more sanctions on Russia and seems to be putting the country on notice for something new every day. Meanwhile, the blob is circling its wagons around this aggressive posture and seems unable to recalibrate to reality or put Washington's role in the ongoing tensions into perspective. Dan, I'd like to ask you, First of all, about a recent piece that you did for RS called "Inside the Blob's Dangerous Echo Chamber," in which you point out how dissenting voices are being punished in Washington. Can you explain uh, what you meant by that?
1: In that, uh, piece? sure, <clears throat> sure. So, uh, what I was talking about is the uh, the groupthink that dominates Russia policy debate, uh, particularly with a, 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 a very hawkish slant, where Russia hawks. Uh, marginalize and uh, show themselves to be very intolerant of any sort of dissenting voice that suggests that uh, there's any kind of possibility for constructive engagement with Moscow and we've seen a couple uh, very prominent examples of this just in the last couple of months uh, I think the most important of these was when uh, the uh, when Matthew Rajansky the director of the Kennan Institute was being considered to be the russia director at the National Security Council in the Biden White House uh, there was a very uh, energetic, uh, fierce smear campaign organized against him, uh, mostly online, but also uh, through other activists. and uh, There was a a concerted effort to paint him essentially as a Kremlin stooge, uh, simply because he believed that US and Russia needed to work together on certain issues, and that constructive engagement was possible, at least in certain areas, including arms control, for example. And unfortunately, the smear campaign worked. Uh, there was a story that was released that he was being considered. I think it came out the Thursday or Friday of that week. And then the next Monday, uh, he was already being rejected by the Biden White House. And so unfortunately, it shows that this, uh, this intolerance of dissent uh, is, in fact, effective in policing what kinds of things are allowed uh, in policymaking and what aren't. And and the the really ridiculous thing about uh, the Rajansky case is that he is, by by the standards of Russia policy debate, quite moderate. Uh, This is not somebody who's out there arguing that we should, what, I don't know, form an alliance with Russia or or completely endorse everything that the Russians do. This is someone who has been quite critical of the Russian government over the years, uh, but who also sees the danger of a kind of reflexive, hysterical, anti-Russian attitude, which has taken hold in Washington. And Unfortunately, the Trump years really fueled that, because Democrats who have traditionally been relatively more open to engagement with Russia completely flipped uh, their orientation and became the most vocally, uh, almost paranoid uh, Russophobes you've ever seen, uh, because they saw some partisan political advantage in painting Trump as being in the, the control of the Kremlin. And so... The, the party that should normally be advocating for diplomacy and engagement uh, has instead become extremely aggressive and anti-Russian, and then of course the Republicans have remained uh, pretty fiercely hawkish on Russia as well, uh, with maybe a, a few exceptions here and there, and so you you end up with uh, it's it's not just a bipartisan consensus, but it's really a, a bipartisan orthodoxy, uh, and if anybody dissents against it, uh, they are uh, attacked and smeared in the most uh, awful way. Uh, the, the other episode that we saw was a re- release of a report from the Atlantic Council uh, by Emma Ashford and Matthew Burroughs that made a few, uh, I thought, fairly sensible recommendations uh, and concluded that sanctions aren't working on Russia. They're not going to work in the future. We need to stop falling back on this tool. We need to recognize the limits of U.S. influence on Russian politics, and we need to have a uh, a willingness to, to work together with the Russians on those areas of common interest that we have and for that they were attacked by members of their own think tank publicly uh, who denounced their report and said uh, essentially we, we want nothing to do with these people and we and we disassociate ourselves from them it was, it was a very uh, pompous bit of uh, uh, boundary policing uh, and, uh, and and an attempt to try to, to punish and and mock these very well-respected scholars. And in that case, I think the the policing backfired a bit on the uh, the enforcers of the orthodoxy because they made themselves look so ridiculous in re- overreacting to the report the way they did. Uh, but it nonetheless sends out a chilling message to anybody that works in the foreign policy space that if you don't tow a very uh, narrow line, you're going to be called out and you're going to be attacked Uh, in the most unfair and and, uh, despicable ways.
0: Barbara, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I know you've written a lot about, uh, you wrote a ton on the impeachment uh, which incorporated a lot of these issues, particularly Ukraine and the relationship between the Trump administration and Russia during the election and beyond. Uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, the 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 blob, the groupthink, uh, the 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 danger, and sort of yielding to this going forward? Yielding to the the blob and the groupthink in the current. Biden administration and its approach to US-Russia relations? Well,
2: it's pretty clear. And I think the response you saw demonstrates that um, there's only one opinion that you're allowed to have on Russia um, in the foreign policy arena right now. Um, That's kind of what that article demonstrated. The fact that Other foreign policy professionals thought that they needed to sort of disavow it when they weren't even part of the article was very strange and showed, I think, that. But, you know, in terms of the impeachment itself or going forward, I think that that's kind of what's happening. I mean, Russia is at this stage right now where they... I don't know if we're going to see like a rapprochement with the Biden administration or not. It's an interesting um, time period mm-hmm. to see whether or not the Democrats are going to move forward away from the impeachment and the that time period of um,
0: derangement. <laughs> Sorry. Well, yeah, so where, where we had
2: this, very odd sort of period where they were sort of single-mindedly I would say obsessed with looking for Russia as an enemy which was an odd flip from a previous time when Republicans were doing that um and I would hope that maybe we can move away from this and and kind of step back uh, I don't think we need this right now at all um as a country, obviously, much more focused on the coronavirus. And I think the Biden administration sort of understands that. However, what we are seeing with the sanctions um, that they recently imposed on Russia sort of looks like they are still taking a heavy-handed approach. On the other hand, we already had a bunch of sanctions on Russia, and it's not really meaningful in any way. Um, and it also is just another way of really doing nothing. Um, like Daniel Larson just said, uh, this is sort of a, um, sanctions are a way of looking like you're doing something, but also doing nothing. And they're not a effective policy we've basically been doing this now over and over again with a bunch of different countries, Venezuela included, and it's not useful or helpful or effective. I think that's been demonstrated over and over again. So as far as is Biden gonna cut a new path towards Russia? I don't really think so. I don't think he's going to be really innovative on that front. I haven't, I think his comment about Putin soulless or what was his quote again
1: <laughs> yeah he doesn't have a soul and he's a killer yeah
2: he looked into his eyes and he saw no soul
0: <laughs> i feel like i need to publish well, bush saw the soul biden says bush he saw, saw the he saw soul? no soul yeah <laughs> Huh. <laughs> so it's you know, and and let I but I, I like to be fair here because if you go into the actual interview at which Biden supposedly said Putin does not have a soul, he was he was asked about it and he said in an affirmative, like they asked, Do you do you think that Putin has a soul? And he said, No. Oh, you know, so they sort so, of set him up to say that. Right, they Like up. A- yeah and it, i and i'm afraid that i've run with it a few times myself but that's mm. sorry okay. dan you were going to say something
1: no it's fine i was just going to add that yeah in in both cases it was stephanopoulos i think who was interviewing him and, and gave him these sort of loaded questions <laughs> and and you know set him up to look really bad good when thing to them. do
2: as an interviewer you know though I
1: mean, <laughs> right well but so anyway yeah he, headline <laughs> he, he ends up that that ends up being the headline from the interview when there you know there might have been something more valuable elsewhere in the interview, but that got drowned out by all of the the killer talk. Yeah. Um, and so it's yeah, it's it's interesting looking at Biden's early moves because of course he he extended new start and saved New Start from expiring, which was very encouraging uh, for people that care about arms control. Uh, but it was it's basically the only constructive step he's taken with regards to Russia. And it seems like there there isn't much appetite uh, to do any more of that. Uh, Well, one of the other things I mentioned in that piece that you referenced, Kelly, is that Biden is the first president coming into office since the end of the Cold War, who has not explicitly committed to improving the relationship with Russia at the beginning. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it seems like every every president always presides over a deterioration of relations with Russia, but at least at the (laughs) beginning, they want to try to make things work. Uh, and that, that was even true with George W. Bush at the very beginning. Uh, but then, uh, of course, as he continued to pursue uh, his own agenda uh, and as NATO continued to expand, those relations n- n- necessarily went south. Uh, and of course, culminating with one of the, the worst low points in the post Cold War period, uh, which was the August 2008 war with Georgia, uh, which was in large part a, a function of the, the push for more NATO expansion into uh, Russia's immediate neighborhood. Um, Do you guys
2: think, though, that Biden is sort of like a, a, he's this president that is deliberately sort of downplaying people's expectations? And then, I mean, I actually think that his administration did that a lot with the vaccines, with the whole 100 days to um, a million or something, which was very easily met and also we already I think had that stockpile there and perhaps on the foreign policy front like you're saying I mean coming in not I'm thinking too of Hillary Clinton like with the reset button with Russia right I mean and she's the one who bombed Gaddafi and stuff like maybe going in and not Playing up any expectation of doing better with Russia is a better play.
1: Uh, Maybe (laughs) I mean it's it's possible. I know that there are some uh, Russia experts, uh, Angela Stent, for example, who argues that uh, the the repeated attempts at reset uh, sort of miss the point that you know there are going to be enduring differences of interests between the U.S. and Russia, uh, at least given the way that our foreign policy is right now, and that. There, there are certain things that you're simply not going to be able to paper over or, or uh, ignore uh, in, that, in, in terms of tensions in the relationship. And so it may be uh, that we will end up with a more constructive relationship by the end of Biden's term than we would have had if he had set out to have one, that it could be. Uh, but, so. but, but what i But what I'm concerned about is that there are so many people agitating for worsening the relationship with Russia all the time that there, there needs to be an initiative in the opposite direction to, to fight against that. And if there's no resistance, then the relationship just keeps crumbling. Um, yeah. We, I mean, we saw with the, the, the brief reset under Obama, that it, it could actually deliver some limited successes. Uh, but then once that initiative from our side went away, uh, and was replaced by more of the same uh, you know, punitive measures against the Russians. Everything uh, fell apart pretty quickly, and and now it's you know it's as bad as it's ever been since since the Soviet Union existed. So it's uh, yeah, that and that's that's quite worrisome uh, because it seems like we still haven't learned from any of the failures of our Russia policy over the last thirty years, and this is where the group think becomes particularly dangerous uh, because. the the standard line on Russia, especially uh, since 2008, is that Russia is this revanchist power, Russia is an imperialist expansionist power, and therefore we have to stop them from expanding. Uh, And we have to do that by bolstering all of the countries along their border. And in practice, this has just exposed those countries to greater risk and to attack without doing anything to improve the position of the US or our allies. So it's and, and I think that's one of the things that's at the root of the crisis with, with Ukraine um, and the conflict that's been going on there for the last seven years. The the perception from Moscow is that the West keeps driving towards them and keeps pushing uh, into their uh, what they would consider their sphere of influence. And, and I think they've started a to push back. Yeah, go ahead.
2: I think there's a toll to some of that impeachment rhetoric as well, as some of I mean, there, in my opinion, there's absolutely been uh, from the rhetoric that the Democrats were using and some of the decisions that the Trump administration took during that time period, for instance, like to publish the the um, conversation with the president of Ukraine and then um, everything that the Democrats decided to do with regards to the entire impeachment really just all of that whole rhetoric. Actually, it's not even just the impeachment itself. It's actually, if you just go back, yeah, pretty much throughout Donald Trump's presidency, because it really goes back Started to 2016. The yeah, It goes, yeah, it's from 2016 forward. They were harping on Russia the whole time. But from 2018 forward, they were bringing up Ukraine and the publication of the the diplomatic, you know, phone call. All these things actually have have consequences for the relationship with Ukraine. With uh, and I think that it, we that it wasn't fully really um, understood or even not necessarily understood, but I don't think that they they really cared. It felt like, okay, we're just, this is a, a domestic political game.
0: Right, we'll being poison played this between. Thing as much as we possibly can and who cares about the consequences.
2: They didn't care about what's going to happen in, I mean, as much as they played it up uh, in Congress when they were doing the impeachment trial, they did not care what happened uh, as a result of what they were doing here. Well, and. And I think that it does. It it has big consequences because those things. I mean, at this point, how do you know if you're speaking to the government, the U.S. government, that you're that you're not going to have your phone call then isn't going to become the next football in some. It's and and your your phone call is not going to get published. And spread all over the place I mean honestly I don't know how you wouldn't know that especially if you're not from a small country like if you were from a small country like Ukraine you might very well think that and I think that that is a big issue that really hadn't been hasn't been really talked about very much but you know all these things were are not even part of that we're not You know, don't matter at all because this was all just, you know, fodder for hopefully they were hoping to have this whole like um, massive trial that they wanted to have for political
0: gain. Right. Well, I mean, I think that there was some attempt over the summer. If you remember, there were dueling letters on rethinking or resetting Russia policy and the rethinking and resetting team or side, which would include, I remember it was like John Huntsman, Fiona Hill, I think Thomas Pickering had put out a letter, I believe it was in August or September of 2020 before the election basically saying, okay, it's it's time to move ahead away from the past and all this acrimony and start a constructive dialogue with Russia. And what you saw immediately was a retort from the zero-sum community, as I'd like to call them within the blob, you know basically rebuking you know these diplomats and these there was a ton of folks and Dan, you probably know a few more that were on the on the on the letter itself. but these weren't outsiders, these weren't um, particularly uh, non-blobby. People who were signing this reset letter, but yet they were strongly rebuked from the the war hawks within the the blob um, and people who weren't even, you wouldn't even consider uh, particularly hawkish, but yet on Russia, they're very firm that there cannot be no constructive dialogue until Russia basically. Goes oh, yes. prostrate in front of of the United States, apologizes for for all of its misdoings and 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 basically, if we let our guard down, that we are opening ourselves up for um, a, a world of hurt. Not to trust uh, Putin, that that there could be any um, diplomatic detente
1: in the making. Yes,
0: so it was very interesting to see that split within the blob. Yes.
1: Right. Well, and, and and what you see there with with someone like Huntsman or, or or Fiona Hill, you have people who actually have a real diplomatic experience or real country expertise. Right. And so, I mean, Fiona Hill was made into a, a, the hero of the resistance exactly uh, during the impeachment hearings uh, because she was testifying to what she saw uh, as part of the National Security Council. Uh, but but in terms of her own views, she did, she did not really buy into the the fear mongering. Uh, that was part of that uh process uh, and, and and we see this threat inflation really poisoning the discourse around russia policy all the time i mean and we saw it again with this you know big russian military buildup on the frontier of ukraine which then went away they they withdrew uh, a large number of those troops and sent them back to their bases and nothing happened but for several weeks there was a steady drumbeat of Russia's about to invade, Russia's about to invade, what's Biden going to do to stop them? Uh, And it turns out that there was nothing to stop. But if you listened to most people in Washington talk about this, you wouldn't have known that. Uh, You you would have assumed the worst and expected that there would now be a full-blown war going on.
0: joining us now is Scott Horton, a friend of mine for many years. Uh, He is director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, host of Antiwar Radio on Pacifica News Network in California. He podcasts the Scott Horton Show from scotthorton.org. And his new book is Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, which is a follow-up to his 2017 book, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. He is also the editor of the 2019 book, The Great Ron Paul, The Scott Horton Show Interviews from 2004 to 2019. He's conducted more than 5,500 interviews since 2003. And I am proud to say that I have done dozen of, a dozen or more of those interviews with Scott over the course of say 15 years and count him as a friend and comrade in the fight against the blob. So welcome Scott to Crashing the War Party.
3: Great to be here. And uh, good to see you and Daniel and and very nice to meet you, Barbara.
0: Nice to meet you
1: too.
3: Good to see you again, Scott.
0: Well, this is very exciting for me. And I think it's probably been more than a dozen uh, interviews that I've done with you over the years. Um, You've been very kind to me uh, during those early years of the GWAT. You'd have me on the show and we'd go over the latest outrages and the war on terror. And uh, it was very cathartic. I remember all of the conversations with you being very sort of um, not only relaxing in terms of like having a, a, a comrade in arms to talk to about these issues, but just being on the same sheet of music when it came to, you know, the, the blob and what we called, you know, in, in the past, we'd call them the, the neocons and the establishment and um, the hive and uh, just having your voice out there. Um, basically, um, you know, just going after these guys for so long and, you know, uh, offering this sort of voice of reason in the wilderness. It was just uh, fantastic. And you're still doing it. So I can imagine that you have like thousands of, um, you know, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't call them tapes because I've been stating myself, but files of these interviews with people. And, you know, you've got these two books and the, the most recent one is about the greater war on terror. But the one that you did before that uh, on Afghanistan, I mean, you laid this out where, you know, the, the failure of this war strategy, you laid out um, in really uh, convincing detail as to what went wrong there. And now we're, uh, you know, we're a few weeks away from, you know, the president's Announcement that we will be getting out of Afghanistan. And I was, you know, I was wondering is as, as now that I have you in the interviewees' spot, how do you feel about what's happening? Um, do you feel optimistic, pessimistic? Do you feel vindicated?
3: Um, well, uh, the last thing first, yeah. I mean, honestly, by the time the book came out in 2017, it's pretty hard to argue that the war is working if it's 2017 and we still have a war, uh, you know, um, so same thing now. I mean, I'm vindicated just only cause it's the simple truth that we already lost the war a long time ago and, uh, we're staving off the inevitable now and not really staving it off very well. Um, and so, but in terms of, that's just the argument in terms of, am I optimistic about the situation? The answer is no. The answer is You know, it's just amazing, honestly, to see in the media the way everyone is treating this. Um, I mean, I'll take it for what it's worth, that people are celebrating what a wonderful, wise decision of Joe Biden to decide to get us out of this war finally. And even W. Bush and Obama both came out and said, yes, this is the right thing to do now. I think Biden maybe asked W. Bush to, to say so, and he did. And so, okay, that's great and everything, but- We had a peace deal and in the media or a withdrawal agreement, let's call that in the media, they just won't talk about the fact that by announcing we're leaving in September, what Biden's doing is he's announcing that he's no longer abiding by the agreement to leave in May. That was the deal, a written signed deal to leave in May. And so now we're supposed to leave when we don't have a deal to leave, uh, when we wouldn't leave when we did have a deal to leave. So to me, the media spin that the announcement is even that we're leaving Afghanistan is really wrong. The real buried lead is Biden broke the withdrawal agreement. We're gonna have six months of much worse fighting with the Taliban, hopefully not attacks directly on Americans, but you know the fight against the, between the Taliban and the Afghan national security forces is going to get much worse over the next few months. And we could have more dead Americans. And for us, this weird symbolic thing of ending on September 11th, gonna get more guys killed, more people killed just to achieve some weird, symbol. And by the way, isn't that really lousy politics for all the hawks to say that you're gonna turn tail and run away from our enemies on September 11th and that kind of thing? They're just setting themselves up for that. So I think what they've done is Uh, rather than Biden has faced down the generals in order to withdraw, what happened was, just like Obama and Trump before him, he rolled over for the generals and gave in to them, broke the deal, and decided to stay. And in September, they're going to stay more again. They're even saying we got to surge more troops in to help get the equipment out. Well, we're going to need force protection for all of them. And We got guys embedded with the Afghan forces all over the country. And then that huge Bagram Air Base that the Pentagon wants to keep no matter what. And then even in the New York Times story that came out, they go, well, of course, you know, we're just going to have more contractors and more CIA and we'll have Joint Special Operations Command, top tier uh, special operations forces. That doesn't really count. They're not the infantry. And so, yeah, we'll have some of that. And we'll have bases and, you know, spies and contractors and mercenaries and whoever in Pakistan. If we can, we'll get them in Uzbekistan or Tajikistan, um, you know, and on from there. So because there's this criticism that, oh, well, you're going to leave a safe haven for the terrorists to come back. Oh, no, we won't. Don't worry. We're going to leave special operations forces and air power either in Afghanistan or right there adjacent so that we can continue the war forever anyway. And so they're refusing to just admit that they lost. And by the way, what counts as ISIS in Afghanistan are just local Pashtun militiamen. The core group came from Pakistan. When Obama was helping the Pakistani government wage the war against the Tariki Taliban in 2010, they came into Afghanistan to fight. But these guys aren't international suicide hijacker types. They're lo- local Pashtun militiamen, And so that's nothing. And all the claims of al-Qaeda, they've named one Egyptian in the last 10 years that they killed there. And maybe he really was there. I don't even know that. But any other claim of al-Qaeda that you find in any of the media, and I read Stars and Stripes every day, God help me. The only claims in there are, yeah, we killed uh, some locals and an al-Qaeda guy. Uh huh. But they don't even claim what country he was from, how we know. What, is he a Chechen with a big red beard? Is he a friend of Osama bin Laden from back in the day, from some training camp on the monkey bars? They don't even pretend to tell us. And then when they get into any detail at all, they go, well, He's tied to Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. (laughs) Oh, really, huh? Yeah, boy. I'll tell you what, I'm terrified of those guys. That sounds like somebody else's problem to me. You know, just like in 2009, they had to pretend that, well, you know, we don't really have any Al-Qaeda guys in Afghanistan. But there are some guys who are members of the L.E.T., Lashkar Itaiba, who is a local group that fights in Kashmir. In a situation where, if it has anything to do with us, it should be that the Americans are trying to work out a long-term peace deal there, which, of course, is not true, and and otherwise has no, you know, has nothing to do with American national interests whatsoever.
1: Absolutely, Scott. And you bring up a, a really important point that a lot of these groups that end up identifying themselves as an Al Qaeda affiliate or an ISIS affiliate are local groups that have their own concerns. They're not particularly concerned with us, except insofar as we're in their way in their country. Yep. Uh, and, and and you see that in the Sahel, you see that uh, in uh, even in Yemen. A lot of people that name themselves ISIS or Al-Qaeda in Yemen uh, are not really uh, the same kinds of people that we were worried about 20 years ago. Uh, they have their own agendas that don't involve us. And so we, we try to lump them in together as a way of justifying under the, the AOMF uh, that we can attack them and say oh well they're associated with al-qaeda or they're associated with isis uh, and so they just keep expanding it to ever more groups uh that are that have nothing to do with protecting the us or protecting uh, even european allies it's it's this uh this process of, of just keeping the
3: war going for the for the sake of
1: keeping it going
3: yep sure seems like it and they'll say well look links I mean, in fact you just used the term associated right well they pretend that the term associated forces is in the authorization to use military force from 2001, but it's not. No, they they had a debate on, for a but... little while. Hey, maybe we could add that to the authorization. And then they decided, eh, let's just break the law. Let's just do whatever we want. So now, look, we took al-Qaeda's side in Libya, but then some of the jihadists there from al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb and the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, they ran on down to Mali and helped hijack the Tuaregs War in Mali. And then apparently, as best I can tell, there really is credible reporting about this. It's not just CIA propaganda. There really is some evidence that some of these guys from Boko Haram down in Nigeria, which are blowback from old British policies, that they came up to Mali and met with the jihadists in Mali and got you know, Qurans and weapons and training and indoctrination, and then went back to Nigeria to be even worse than they already were. And so now if you're in Tampa, Florida at you know Central Command, you go, hey, great. We can just these are all linked. Look at how associated they all are. From the Philippines to the Indian subcontinent to Afghanistan to Yemen where we're fighting on Al-Qaeda's side to Syria where Uh, well, we're essentially on al-Qaeda's side in Syria, to uh, North Africa, where we definitely are not. Al-Shabaab, we're still killing them in East Africa. And in Mali, Special Operations Forces working with the French to kill jihadists there still. And so we can just link these associated forces and essentially follow wherever there's a Sunni militiaman with a rifle who says that, you know, like some idiot entrapped by the FBI... Yeah, all hail Osama, right? And so now here comes the SOCOM, uh, you know, from here unto eternity. So so uh, I
2: think this has been sort of an issue with our global war on terror since, I mean, throughout the entire saga, really, that there there is no connecting thread to the whole thing at all. Like, if you go all the way back to basically our entire... Our entire relationship with the Stadis, we have they have been supporting the the this terrorist ideology and sending money to well, they were sending money to bin Laden sort of as a almost like a, a ransom payment in the beginning and trying to um hoping to distract from their own profligacy really in their own country and hoping that if they did that then basically it would distract their citizens from their own problems Mm -hmm. and that didn't really work well it maybe it worked for like 20 years or so and during that time so then you have bin laden's putting together his 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 terrorist group cells or whatever in Afghanistan. And and we're distracted in the nineties, I guess. But eventually all of this kind of all comes home to roost. We have no, we still have no, there's no, there's no sort of overarching idea or plan here. Like we had in, I guess with communism, we sort of, it seems like at least, with Reagan, we sort of had an idea or to combat communism. But with this, it's just like, okay, we're going to support these guys. Like in Syria, we were supporting both sides and sort of arming both groups. We, we had weapons, American weapons were basically on each side of supporting both groups of terrorists. And I believe that's still, that's, this is still going on in Africa as well. Right. So at this point, and I actually some... It's a little maybe conspiratorial, but maybe not. It's almost the, it feels like that's actually the, um, the purpose. Because at the end of the day, we make more money, or the, the weapons industry at least sort of benefits from this, you know? So I don't know what your thoughts are on all of that.
3: Yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that. I mean, okay, well, it seems a little more chaotic from the outside than I think it is. Basically, you know, and this is sort of the theme of the book. Well, there are different themes throughout the book, but, you know, one of the main ones is that America's still reacting and trying to deal with the fact that they lost Iran, in 1979, there was this popular revolution and the Shiite Ayatollahs came to power and declared independence from us yes. And so then in the early uh, 90s, the Israelis decided that they also hated Iran too In order, in fact, as uh, one Israeli analyst told Trita Parsi, this was new glue for the alliance with the United States That Now that the Soviet Union is gone, we need a reason for them to need us and it's the threat of radical Islam as embodied by the Ayatollah. And, and you know, I get into, they switched from the periphery doctrine to negotiating with their Arab neighbors uh, under Rabin. And then, but then he was assassinated. And every prime minister since then in Israel has just used Iran uh, as a distraction essentially from their refusal to negotiate with the Palestinians. But anyway, here we are. So that's their part of the policy. And then the Americans, of course, Um, in 2003, they invaded Iraq. And in doing so, empowered not just the supermajority Shiite population, but they empowered the most Iranian-tied factions, the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq and the Dawa Party. And these were guys, many of them had been living in Iran for 20 years since the time when um, America supported Saddam's invasion of Iran. They had chosen Iran's side. Now, and these are the same people who Bush had encouraged, Bush Sr. had encouraged to rise up in 91 and then betrayed because he realized, oh, whoops, these are Iran's guys. And so they let Saddam crush the revolution. But then that became the excuse to stay in Saudi Arabia for the next decade, which is what got us attacked. And then that became the excuse to go back to Iraq. And then Jr. picked up right where his father left off and he put those same Shiite factions, especially Skiri and Dawah, right in power in Baghdad. Well, by the end of 2005, the beginning of 2006, they realized, they admitted to themselves what they'd done essentially. And it was Zalmay Khalilzad and Elliot Abrams who spearheaded a policy called the redirection that said, look, we really screwed up and we empowered our regional rivals, the Iranians. And so now we have to tilt back toward the Saudis further. And Khalil Zad and Cheney went to Saudi Arabia and went and bowed down before the king and said, you know, we're gonna fix this for you, essentially. What a mess. And,
2: I know, and, and, <laughs> and I think now <laughs> that Elliot Abrams was convicted of lying to Congress in the Iran Contra affair, just for those who aren't aware of that.
3: Yeah, uh, he's he's a prominent neoconservative. He's a great guy. Now.
2: And also and so, that 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 whole the this decision making of, of doing this, by the way also led to ISIS because it was going in and empowering the, the Iraqi factions that were Iranian, uh, or that were allied with the Iranians that, that pissed off the groups that were the, 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 the minority in Iraq.
3: Right. Eventually so they
0: become ISIS.
2: Yeah. Right,
3: so that was, that was what led to the creation of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which had never existed before the war. And that was essentially the Sunni insurgency against the American and Shiite alliance. And, and it was really the worst part of it. The, the, the vast majority of the Sunni insurgency there was just local tribal fighters. But Zarqawi and his guys were essentially bin Ladenite terrorists and, and were the worst part of that insurgency. And then luckily, and this was really just a stroke of luck for, American, for the American people's interests anyway, was that by... Uh, 2006 right around the time that the americans were realizing their mistake and and deciding on this redirection policy the local iraqi sunnis decided that the zarqawiites were more trouble than they were worth because uh, you know really essentially they were bad at math and, and they had provoked this horrible sectarian uh war by the shiites which you know they're both sides playing in it but the would master Shiite civilians, you know, pilgrims at holy sites and, and blew up the Samarra Golden Dome Mosque and these kinds of things. And that provoked this massive sectarian war and cleansing campaign by the Shiites and that the Sunnis just lost. And at, at this point, or they were in the middle of losing and they turned on the jihadists. So we're tired of a bunch of Saudis and Egyptians telling us what to do and all of this stuff and started marginalizing them. And in fact, in the summer of 06, they turned Zarqawi over to the Americans who dropped the bomb on his head. And so this was, you know, David Petraeus took credit for all this and called it the awakening and all that, but it was just the local tribes getting sick of the jihadists and isolating them. So this was, you know, here Bush had created Jihadi University in Western Iraq And, you know, with classes in the tens of thousands or at least in the thousands. And then the local population, not the enemy Shiites, but their local allies, got sick and tired of them and shot them all and took care of the problem for us.
2: Because you will see, you know, particularly with John Bolton, um, a lot of revisionist history happening um, where he'll say. They lied
3: the whole time. At the time they were lying, too, taking credit for it.
2: Now he says that you know that ISIS was an inevitable, uh, an inevitable group or something that always existed there, and Al Qaeda in Iraq was something that always existed, and, and and you'll also hear this now with people discussing what's going to happen in Afghanistan, and the they the way that the commentators are talking about it is that they're discussing what they're saying is going to happen is very much as if the people who live there have no agency in what will happen in their country. It's so almost colonial the way that they discuss what will take place. So I think that this, what you're talking about, it's, it's really worth remembering that history because it's important to remember that the Iraqis were instrumental in what took place in, in those years too. And just like the Afghans will be and what will happen in this upcoming period, yeah. it's not, they, they have just as much of a role to play. And it's not as if, you know, we, we like to act as if like, um, and the Americans are the only people that get to decide what happens.
1: And yeah, there absolutely is a colonial mentality, Barbara, you're right. Uh, I mean, and a lot of the people that are lo- complaining most loudly about leaving Afghanistan have explicitly compared our mission there to imperial policing from the, the British imperial days. I mean, Max Boot most famously likens what we're doing uh, to patrolling the northwest frontier of India. Uh, and, and so that there, for the people like that, there is no end date in sight for it. It, it is supposed to be permanent. It's supposed to be this ongoing uh, role that we simply play because we're the imperial power and that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, and there, there's no consideration of, of whether it actually has anything to do with the security of the United States uh, or, or indeed uh, anyone's security. It's, it's simply uh, a sort of self-justifying policy that keeps rolling on uh, without any concern for for the effects that it has.
0: Well, we have a, A few minutes left, Scott. I really would like to give you a chance to talk about your book a little bit. I know we've been talking about a lot of the themes that are, that undergird the book, but if you could maybe tell me a little bit about why you wrote the book enough already and what you hope um, readers will get out of it.
3: Um, Well, I mean, I didn't really write it for people with power. I wrote it for just for regular people, but I, and I really do hope it, it gets out. It's been kind of a hit inside the libertarian community at least. Yep. Um, but I'm trying to push it out to a little bit broader audiences than that, I hope, and and sort of get people. I, I mean, the bottom line uh, answer to your question is I want people in general, like not just the Vallejos and Larisons of the world, but regular people in y'all's neighborhood to say to each other, you know, there's this new book out that says that we could just quit all of this. You know, I want that to be part of the conversation that, you know what, at the end of the day, as we are just talking about, uh, the enemy of our government is Iran and the Shiites, not Al-Qaeda and the radical bin Ladenite terrorists that shed innocent American blood. And they'll side with Al-Qaeda, such as in Libya and especially, never mind Libya, but in the case of uh, Syria and Yemen, just to spite the Shiites, they'll side with the Bin Laden uh, suicide bombers. And so uh, when, it's, when we're 20 years into the war and our government is on the wrong side of it, yeah, I mean, outright on the wrong side, of it, not just fighting in a counterproductive manner like in Iraq War II, but outright siding, siding with the enemy, like in Libya, Syria, and Yemen. At this point, it's time to just go ahead and call it off. And the fact of the matter is, it never was radical Islam that made these people target us. It was Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Bill Clinton's policies that made them target us. And so if we would just, and this is the thing, is we can't just end the war on terrorism. We have to renounce the policy of dominance in the Middle East. We have to entirely get the hell out of there. And then our terrorism problem will dry up. And that's how to end the war on terrorism, is to stop provoking terrorists, essentially, resistance to american intervention there and the thing is about september 11th was you know the american people if you think about like the time and the space of all that that summer the biggest news stories was gary condit who did not kill his intern and it was obvious he didn't but they wouldn't leave him alone about it anyway for months. (laughs) and it was the summer of the shark oh my god there were 11 shark attacks According to all of TV and Time and Newsweek and everything, this is what we're supposed to care about. Now, for me, I was saying, oh, man, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Here it comes. There's going to be a massive attack and then wars. It's so obvious that W. Bush is going to be a war president for eight years. And, oh, it's coming. But the American people were just completely taken by surprise. And the images on TV are literally straight out of the cliche, right? The planes came out of the clear blue sky. And so the Americans are going, huh? And then W. Bush goes, yeah, today's the first day in history. The 20th century doesn't count. There's nothing about the 20th century that you need to know that has anything to do with what's happening now. It's the first day in the history of the world. These people hate us because their religion makes them into psychopaths who hate goodness. And so now we have to defend goodness from evil. And you're going to write me a writ to kill this one guy and his 400 friends, and I'm gonna take it to kill a couple of million people. I'm gonna do whatever I want, spend trillions, fight wars for our adversaries and for our enemies, and never for the American people this whole time. And Barack Obama, when people said he was a secret Muslim from Kenya who took the side of the terrorists because he was a partisan for them and all that, it was Liz Cheney in the State Department under the redirection who started funneling millions of dollars to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and Syria. That was Elliot Abrams and Zalmay Khalilzad and George W. Bush and Stephen Hadley's policy that Barack Obama simply inherited. And that's why he committed the highest treason in the history of all of mankind, spending a billion dollars a year backing al-Qaeda in Syria until the point that they literally carved out the bin Ladenite caliphate that had been nothing but bin Laden's fantasy hiding in his attic and Glenn Beck's most ridiculous war propaganda from the W. Bush years. They made it come true. And they made Benedict Arnold look like George Washington and in committing the, the most outright treason imaginable. When we all knew at antiwar.com, we covered this. Yep. From 2011 on, we knew that the leaders of the revolution in Syria were bin Ladenite suicide bomber head chopper terrorists. They are the bad guys from the last war. And now we're calling them moderates. Why? Because our government and the Israelis and the Saudis hate Iran more. Well, I don't. Because it wasn't Hezbollah that knocked our towers down and killed 3,000 people. It was al-Qaeda that did that. And so... um, you know, that's the thing. That's the explanation for it. America's got a policy to dominate a part of the world that you know might as well be on the far side of Mars from here. It's not their right. They have no right whatsoever for this. You know, just because America inherited the European and Japanese empires after World War II doesn't mean we had a right to keep them. And then certainly once the excuse of the Cold War against the Soviet Union ended at the end of the 1980s, then that was it. They should have brought all the troops home. This is supposed to be a temporary, limited constitutional yeah. republic, not a world empire. And, and look what we've done. The United States of America is, com, has committed over the last 20 years, one big suicide attack, killed 2 million people and destroyed our own society at home. Just like I and a lot of other people warned was going to happen 20 years ago.
0: Well, you know, and I, what I'm thinking for, for our listeners right now, I'm, you know, I, what I'd like to convey to them is that it, it, it has been 20 years and there are plenty of details and twists and turn, turns in this, you know, pathetic, absurd story of the war on terror that we've forgotten. So I would suggest that people, you know, pick up your book, uh, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, and get back into those details because they're all a lesson to be learned uh, so that we don't do this again or we, or we stop what's happening now and not, you know, pursue this sort of strategy ahead. Can you can you tell us just very quickly how to find your book and where people can listen to you?
3: Sure. So the book is at enoughalreadybook.net, and I'll forge on there to the page of the Libertarian Institute. And on that page of the Libertarian Institute, you'll find links to five or 10, whatever it is, eight or 10 different sources that you can buy it. So a lot of people don't like amazon.com. So we have Barnes and Noble and Powell's books. And uh, it's even on Scribd and Kobo and all those things. Um, And then of course, at amazon.com. And uh, it's called Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And then my show is at scotthorton.org. As you mentioned, uh, I just passed the line of 5,500 interviews the other day, 18 years and 5,500 interviews there, all at scotthorton.org. And they're at youtube.com slash show. And then my institute is the Libertarian Institute. That's me and the heroic Sheldon Richman and the great uh, Pete Canonez and Kyle Anselone and a great group of podcasters and writers there. And then uh, I'm the editorial director of the most important project on the internet, of course, antiwar.com.
0: All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Scott. Really, this was a wonderful conversation. We hope to have you back around 9-11 to talk more about, about that anniversary coming up.
3: Great. Thank you so much for having me, all y'all.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.